But we now know that a single study is not good enough. We have to try and replicate the same study in different settings. It is the collective wisdom from all these replicated studies that really helps us to advance science. And systematic reviews is really the best methodology of trying to appraise collective wisdom from all those studies and seeing where the deficiencies are uh, if we are to learn from them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Methodology Matters. I'm here with the one, the only Dr. Bradley Johnston. Brad, how you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Yeah, yeah. Good to be here uh, talking about uh, a really interesting interview with uh, another one and only uh, Dr. Lahana Tabani, who I just uh, was fascinated to listen to him. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm excited to share this interview with our listeners. Um, Lahana has great perspective, which I think everyone will really enjoy. In particular, we're going to talk a lot about methodology, which is um, obviously a link back to um, the name of the podcast. Why is methodology or applied research methodology unique um, to this day in terms of advancing the field of nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's almost as if methodology matters. <clears throat> so uh, let's contextualize a, f- uh, a couple of things here. Um, so we mentioned McMaster University quite a bit, and Dr. Tabani is uh, currently at McMaster University, has been for a number of years. Why are we talking about McMaster? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, our listeners might recall that we did um, two episodes with Dr. Gordon Guyatt, who's also at McMaster. And now, again, we're back to McMaster for another interview, and yet we're in the U.S. So what is it about McMaster? Well, um, I guess I my uh, I should admit that I did training at McMaster, so I do have um, a history there. But what's really special about McMaster is it's actually thought of as the home of evidence-based medicine. Mm. And what's interesting about evidence-based medicine or the principles of evidence-based medicine is there's a real overlap with something called clinical epidemiology. So McMaster was the first um, department of clinical epidemiology in the world. The department is now called health research methodology, the department of health research methodology. But you can kind of think of uh, being an evidence-based medicine practitioner and Mm -hmm. a clinical epidemiologist as being synonymous. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And what's, Um, And so clinical epidemiology is kind of the middle path between Mm -hmm. epidemiology, so capital E, classic epidemiology, um, and kind of the more basic science or the mechanistic sciences, which are um, kind of laboratory-based, often uh, mice models and so forth, um, Mm -hmm. so um, preclinical data. Um, So clinepi kind of comes down the middle. And um, McMaster being the home of evidence-based medicine slash the first home of, of uh, where they train people to be clinical epidemiologists, um, to this day, I believe, is still a special place because there's a real emphasis on teaching often clinicians um, a lot about study design and research methodology and really stati- um, I would say challenging the status quo in terms of 
what we're doing clinically or from a public health perspective, we can always probably do a bit better. Mm. And McMaster really kind of trains people to understand methods and question um, the evidence base and look for areas of improvement. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, you you know, on the one hand, you have uh, classic uh, capital E epidemiology. On the other hand, you have sort of the basic sciences. And then in the middle, you've got this, this evidence-based methodology that we, you know, that a lot of uh, folks like Dr. Guy, Dr. Dabani, yourself are all really trying to follow is kind of a middle path as far as the best thing for looking at the evidence, but also the values and preferences of the uh, of the public or the patient and sort of trying to apply that in the correct way using evidence the best that we can. Yeah, to improve decision making. And it's really kind of, uh, I think, kind of a humanitarian type approach, you know, mm. where um, this idea of bringing values and preferences into decision making is actually still new to the field of nutrition. Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, does it make sense in nutrition? And if it does, how do we best do that? Sure. So, uh, all right. So McMaster, super important, uh, not just for for medicine in general, but specifically for evidence-based medicine. Uh, So then, you know, why are we talking with Dr. Tabani? Yeah, sure. Um, So Dr. Tabani um, is, he really, I would say, embodies the McMaster ethos of of being an evidence-based practitioner Mm -hmm. um, or um, being a clinical epidemiologist. So he's, by training, a biostatistician. Okay. The other part of the ethos or the the parts of the ethos that I would say he he really embodies are he's very collaborative in in his nature, very respectful. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we're all like to collaborate Um, in general. It's a part of um, doing better, but he has a special way of doing it as well. That's I, I think very respectful of, of different collaborators from different backgrounds, from different disciplines mm. um, so that there's a kind of a collective wisdom so that we get better research design and better answers to our questions. Um, yeah. He's obviously got a, um, a focus on methodology in particular. He's a biostatistician. So as he, as he says, he plays in everyone's backyard, um, <laughs> but he, he really has a focus on, on randomized control trials and mm-hmm. systematic reviews of, yeah. of randomized trials or observational studies. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess the the other thing that he really emulates is the idea of continual improvement. There's always yeah. room to challenge um, and improve the current evidence base so that we can do better. Um, and so, um, and he's been at McMaster for I think um, well over ten years. It could could even be over fifteen years. So he really. Mm-hmm. Um, He's been the chair of the Department of Health Research Methodology. He really knows his history of, yeah. of McMaster. So um, he's a great guy to um, to get some perspective from. Yeah, I think that's great. Also, and it's not scientifically relevant, but he is like one of the nicest people I've ever met. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't that doesn't you hurt know? either. He, he <laughs> no, totally it has a way of letting people be themselves. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Like he, you know, it's clear that his ego does not get in the way of his improvement or the improvement of his work. And that is a rarity, I think, in any field. Mm -hmm. I want to mention a couple of quick things before we get into the actual interview. Um, We hear a little bit about the background McMaster. Uh, We talk about John Evans and Dave Sackett and kind of how it was founded. Mm -hmm. Um, 
we also talk about uh, sort of the principles that uh, on which McMaster was founded, but also that they kind of continue to operate. Um, you know, a lot of these principles that you mentioned, Dr. Tabani embodies collaboration, challenging the status quo, examining the evidence, letting the research guide the the research, the current body of research guide the research question. All mm-hmm. really great stuff. Uh, and and you really do get. I love that you say you know, talk about this, this idea of continual improvement, you really get a sense that like, Dr. Tabani, his colleagues at McMaster, like they're living in a world where all they're trying to do is continually improve the current body of evidence and make decisions based on that evidence. Yeah. And, and he also talks um, towards the end, he makes the distinction between a biostatistician and a methodologist, um, yeah. an applied research methodologist, which is really, I think, something born out of McMaster, like training people to actually really understand the methodology of all different study designs and be able mm-hmm. to distinguish, to have a distinguishing mind um, in terms of what's a, an actual good cohort study versus a bad one and what's in between, you know, the, the areas of gray, for example. So great. That's great. Well, uh, It was fascinating to sit and listen to the two of you talk. And uh, so without further ado, let's let the audience get to uh, part one of our interview with Dr. Lahana Tabani. Dr. Lahana Tabani, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. Wonderful to have you with us today. Uh, Just to kind of re-emphasize Dr. Tabani's background, he's a professor of biostatistics at McMaster University. He's the former associate chair of the Department of Health Research Methodology, Evidence, and Impact at McMaster, formerly um, called Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Um, Dr. Tabani's uh, collaborated on over 100 randomized trials in his career thus far, including trials published in top journals such as uh, New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Lancet, etc. And really, um, Lahana, if I can call you Lahana, um, I think uh, we wanted to speak to you today, Matt and I, because um, in my mind, you really do exemplify the leadership skills um, that the founders of McMaster University's Department of Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics, now Health Research Methodology, Evidence and Impact, long acronym or long, long term, you really is kind of espouse those leadership skills. Um, you've mentored over 200 graduate students and early career scientists. Um, from around the world. I've worked with you now for maybe about five years or so, and um, I only have very positive impressions and experiences. And um, I know you know a lot about the history of of McMaster University in terms of some of the founders, Dr. John Evans and Dave Sackett, the founder of of, uh, ClinEpi and Biostatistics Program. And so we wanted to talk to you about why it's unique um, and is it still unique? Um, so the first question, if I may, is why is McMaster's health research methodology graduate program unique um, to this day worldwide? Thank you, Brett, um, for your kind introduction. Um, you know, one of the things that really continues to make McMaster uh, attractive, particularly the HRM program, if you allow me to now call the acronym HRM program for the Health Research Methodology Program, is because of the uniqueness of the program itself, everything really centers around applied uh, research methods. And it's all about really 
letting the research question guide the process. Uh, it guides the methods you choose to answer the question. It guides the collaborators you want to work with. And really, uh, the process of how the whole journey of trying to seek answers to the research question will take place. In many ways, one of the things that, in addition to really let the research question guide the process, including your collaborators or the choice of your collaborators, is the experiential nature of learning within the program. Many of our students are embedded in different research groups, uh, which tend to really focus on different content areas. But this experiential learning provides another uh, opportunity for our students to really understand how research applies in health. The other thing also is, as we see the importance of working together with others uh, to solve problems, collaborations has become a central piece of how we train students. And they can see uh, how uh, the professors within the program actually collaborate with, with other people, collaborate with each other, and they embrace all these principles that really makes us um, still a very unique program uh, in terms of how we instill these fundamental principles um, of working together. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think everyone in, in the research world would um, agree that collaboration is really important. And it's, you know, if you don't have it, you're, you're, you're basically hooped. But in my experience at McMaster University, there's something unique about the collaborative spirit there. Um, can you comment on that? Why is it different at McMaster than maybe it is at the University of Toronto or um, maybe a university in the U.S.? True. Yeah. I think the best way to really appreciate it is to tell you my story as a biostatistician. I'm a biostatistician by training. And quite often, uh, when I'm brought into a collaboration, people wouldn't come to me saying, I just need the sample size, or I just need you to tell me what statistical methods to use. Rather, they would actually bring me into the effort earlier on as they're thinking about how to solve the clinical problems they encounter in practice. So all our collaborators really are brought in at the time when we say, here's a clinical issue, and we all huddle together to figure out how to then translate a clinical issue into a researchable question. So as a biostatistician, I'm not just vested in trying to determine the best methods, but in understanding the clinical issues and how those clinical issues can then be turned into a researchable question for which then we can figure out what best methods to use. So there's mutual respect of all collaborators, uh, regardless of their background uh, discipline or regardless of their background culture for that matter. So that's one of the unique natures that we don't bring people as consultants, but rather as true collaborators with mutual respect across uh, all disciplines. Mm -hmm. That's great. And so I wanted to uh, kind of continuing on, on the theme of what is unique to this day um, about McMaster's Health Research Methodology Graduate Program. Um, I've heard you say to me, and, and truthfully, in the pre-interview for this for this podcast, you said that the McMaster ethos um, is really about um, continual improvement 
around the current body of evidence, like trying to find, uh, create, um, develop more evidence so that we can make more confident decision making. Can you talk a little bit more about that ethos? Yeah, thank you. I mean, if we think about really uh, the history of how uh, Dave Suckett and his colleagues really uh, tried to do when they first started the department, um, this was in the 60s when the medical school was uh, just established. And what Dave and his colleagues were trying to do was that um, they realized that in most cases, doctors were actually making decisions to provide care but a lot of that was not really based on sound evidence or sound evidence principles, but rather they were based on whatever has always been done before uh, with all their you know, doctors, uh, I mean, mentors, uh, you know, telling them what to do because they were also told what to do. So they then instilled a culture where they were trying to encourage doctors to rely more on evidence to make clinical decisions to support care. And that culture has always been about really challenging the status quo in terms of how people approach uh, generation of evidence, synthesis, synthesis of that evidence, and application of uh, that synthesized evidence into guidelines that guide practice. And this continues to be really the culture that in everything that uh, is done within the program, it's all about really looking at are there things we can do better about how we generate evidence? Uh, if there are things we can always improve on, that's what everyone will always go for, including once we have generated the evidence, is the way we synthesize it optimal enough? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is the way we translate it into best practice guidelines good enough? And then is the way we then take those guidelines and help doctors make better decisions for care good enough. Mm -hmm. So everything is about really how to continue to make improvements across the spectrum from generation of evidence and application of that evidence by the bedside. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting, continues to be interesting. Maybe we could, um, I could paint a bit of an example for our listeners um, that's nutrition oriented. So Lahana, you and I recently published a paper in the British medical journal on low carbohydrate diets for diabetes reversal, um, or I should say remission. <clears throat> and so low carb diets are obviously controversial. Um, I think a lot of people that have been um, talking about this evidence, you know, going back 5, 10, 15 years ago, have been looked at by maybe the conventional um, nutrition community as a bit wacky. Um, but as the evidence kind of mounts, there's now 23 randomized control trials. I think we're starting to learn that um, there's some potential promise here. We did a systematic review and we kind of summarized the best estimates of, uh, of effect and the certainty of, of the effect um, for each of the estimates. But in doing so, it was a wonderful opportunity to look at the state of the evidence and, and understand how good clinical trialists are doing. We, and we identified a lot of things that need improvement. So yes. um, I'm just going to share a few examples and you can um, reflect on that um, if you wish. Sure. So we found, for example, that people are not very um, clear on their definitions of what low carbohydrate means. Um, to some people, it's um, less than 26%. To other people, it's less than 40% carbohydrates. Uh -huh. And then if you, for example, 
um, are considering ketogenic diets, um, it's less than 10%. So there's a lot of variability in terms of how trialists um, implement so-called low-carbohydrate diets. Um, there's not a lot of clarity in terms of the proportion of protein and or fat um, that is kind of matched or that is um, implemented alongside the low-carbohydrate diet. So very poor reporting, very unclear. Um, of all of the 23 randomized trials that we looked at, um, there was very, very scant data in terms of the quality of calories that people consumed. So um, if one was to recommend to a patient to follow a low-carbohydrate diet, we don't really know. Um, we can't really tell them specifically, based on the evidence anyway, what types of foods they should be eating because it's not really reported in the trial. So that's a big problem. We need uh, future trials need to do a much better job uh -huh. of um, providing information to the readers um, and to, to the clinical decision makers about um, what what did the diets actually entail in terms of the typical foods. Um, and two other points that I'll quickly hit on are all of the trials to date are, are short term. There's nothing really longer than two years. And so future trials need to um, follow these patients for longer. And there's, again, very scant data in terms of quality of life. So yeah. if you make a fairly radical change to your diet, um, but we don't have any evidence on how it impacts patients' quality of life um, or their dietary satisfaction, that's not very useful. So there's lots of room for improvement. So I just wanted to um, share this as an example because, you know, there's so much utility to doing systematic reviews to really understand the nature of the, of the data that currently does exist. And, and with the McMaster kind of ethos, finding opportunities for new studies, um, new primary studies, for example. It is true, yeah. See, one of the fundamental things that McMaster has really tried to instill uh, with their HRM program is the importance uh, of reproducibility of findings. Um, so it is not enough that uh, we rely on evidence from randomized control trials as really the best evidence. We also have to look at the quality of the methods of those randomized control trials. So a lot of the things you've mentioned really related to not only just about synthesizing the evidence from different trials, but looking at the consistency and the quality uh, of the evidence from those randomized controlled trials. So we would never uh, at McMaster uh, really do any new study unless we have looked at what is the evidence today and how good is that evidence? Where are the issues with it in terms of deficiencies in methods and so on? And part of it is so that when we go on to do the next trial, we do it in such ways that we try now to close the gap on all those deficiencies. And the idea is that for others who then try to replicate it, things would have been a lot more clearer than perhaps those that had tried to do the same thing before us. Mm -hmm. So training in systematic reviews and the methodology of systematic reviews and how to appraise the methods of trials as part of doing that systematic review. It's an essential component of really what uh, the program tries to instill. So that being said, uh, at the same time, systematic reviews have kind of a bad rap. Um, people um, 
like to say that they're easy to do. And um, if they're already, if some are already done, why, why do another one? Well, yeah, it's, it's always easy to uh, criticize something if you don't really have the background uh, information as to why it's done and perhaps what are the nuances about it that uh, perhaps may not uh, be well understood by others. Systematic reviews, really, they're not just about um, abstracting what others have done and putting it together and pulling. It's really trying to go a lot deeper at understanding whether, you know, have things been done across all trials in ways that can be reproducible? Uh, you know, are the methods defensible? Is there something about this method, uh, something about the time uh, or follow-up uh, for outcomes that can be standardized across trials in ways that can actually produce evidence uh, that is useful in practice. Bear in mind that um, the key is really trying to see whether the evidence would be useful in practice. Mm -hmm. um, so systematic reviews really provide us a great opportunity of not just looking at the evidence, but appraising the evidence. And appraisal of the evidence is really about methods. You know, one of the things that... Um, Dave and his colleagues really noticed was that for us to be able to do a better job in science, and science is all about replication, is understanding the methods of how people generated findings. Mm -hmm. Because it's only when we are clear on how the methods were done that we can actually replicate what others have done. Science is predicated on nothing else but replication of other findings. You see, the way we do it is we take one study, we do it in one patient, and then we replicate the same thing in several patients, and then we observe the outcomes. Mm -hmm. But we now know that a single study is not good enough. We have to try and replicate the same study in different settings. It is the collective wisdom from all these replicated studies that really helps us to advance science. And systematic reviews is really the best methodology of trying to appraise collective wisdom from all those studies and seeing where the deficiencies are uh, if we are to learn from them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not only replicating, but improving upon, I think is fair to say. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so one example being um, future trials for low carbohydrates should um, systematically assess health-related quality of life. There's why that data is not in the trials is, um, is a bit of a mystery, um, but that would help with decision-making for sure and, and public health decision-making as well. Um, okay, so moving on, um, maybe a little bit of history on the McMaster program. So how did it all start at McMaster? Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, your background knowledge in terms of um, Dr. John Evans, uh, Dr. Dave Sackett? Yeah. So the medical school started at McMaster probably around 1966 or 67, somewhere around there. And uh, when the medical school was started, uh, Dave was recruited. He was in the U.S. at the time. Uh, to be able to lead the research arm of the medical school. So when Dave was brought in, he became the first chair of the clinical epidemiology 
department which was part of the medical school. And the goal was to be able to actually perhaps lead, you know, the research aspects of the medical school um, with the goal of uh, helping doctors to use evidence to make decisions. So it was a very small department. Um, what they did was they wanted, Dave wanted to recruit a statistician. So he advertised a job for a statistician and two people interviewed for the job was Charlie Goldsmith and Mike Jent. They interviewed both of them uh, apparently on the same day and actually two of them attended each other's talk and mm -hmm. they went at it uh, during the talk and then after the interviews, Dave decided, I'm not hiring one, I'm actually hiring two of them. <laughs> so they ended up hiring two uh, statisticians uh, while that was not part of the plan, but apparently they were so good that Dave said, if we are to do anything in advancing how we actually look at evidence in health, we need statisticians. He understood the importance uh, of statistics in generating evidence using trials and thought really their best effort would actually be enhanced if they had statisticians as part of that team. Okay, so on, on that topic, there is a real distinction between a biostatistician as a collaborative team member and a methodologist, which I think in many papers that I've worked on with people from McMaster, we often refer to ourselves as methodologists. I'm assuming that that kind of came out of McMaster. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between the two? Yes. So when the department began, they then decided to actually create a training program. And the training program was called uh, Design, Measurement, and Evaluation. And the goal of the program was simple, was not to actually uh, turn people into statisticians, uh, but rather to train clinicians to understand the methods used or necessary to actually generate good evidence. And those that were non-clinicians, they were actually taught methods to be able to work well with clinicians to solve clinical problems. Mm -hmm. So their goal was really not to, um, you know, graduate people who have expertise in statistics or biostatistics uh, or in any clinical discipline. It was all about research methods. So the whole program uh, evolved to what it is today because what was coming out of that DME program was people who really understood the methods of how to translate a clinical problem into a researchable question and methods of how to actually then design studies that would generate the best evidence with the least bias and higher precision of estimates of whatever they were looking for out of those studies. Mm -hmm. So it was a clinical, the first clinical epidemiology program, which was intended to training doctors about evidence how to appraise the evidence, how to generate the evidence, and how to apply it at the bedside to make clinical decisions. But mm -hmm. many of the people who came through the program ended up actually being a lot better than a general or a typical uh, clinician in terms of understanding the methods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and you know, there's really two wonderful examples, at least in my mind, of um, how we can measure or see what 
McMaster folks have been up to. One is the user's guides to the medical literature was the series that uh, Dr. Gordon Guyatt and Dave Sackett and many others, Dr. Brian Haynes, Sharon Strauss, etc., cetera, uh, contributed to, um, which really helped people um, learn how to better read, appraise, and apply the evidence. And that eventually, and we talked to Dr. Guyatt about this, that evolved into the grade working group um, and now the grade working group is really actually more methods centered. And they've now published at least 30 official grade papers in terms of giving the world guidance in terms of how to conduct practice guidelines, whether they be public health or clinical, and how to conduct and synthesize and look at the certainty of evidence based on systematic reviews and meta-analysis. And I think ultimately GRADE has probably published over 100 papers yep. over the last, let's say, 20 years um, as part of the GRADE kind of working group. Um, so it's not only um, happening within the program, but it's happening um, through publications and through guidance for, for the world. Yeah. It's interesting because the JAMA series <clears throat> sorry, was really about, uh, you know, trying to really bring evidence-based medicine principles to life. And if you look at a lot of things that came out of McMaster, or at least out of uh, the CMB department, which it was called at the time, it was clean happy and biostatistics, you know, you have examples such as large simple trials that uh, Salim Youssef uh, actually uh, brought to the world in terms of really designing very large trials using simple processes and procedures to run and collect data in those trials, mm -hmm. but broad populations answering uh, several questions. And then we had examples of the minimum clinically important difference, uh, something that came out of uh, the methods of trying to actually use patient reported outcomes and understanding how to study uh, properties of responsiveness and interpretability of uh, that information. And then the minimum clinically important difference as a, a method of really trying to figure out how to interpret evidence from uh, such tools came about. And then, you know, you have um, the Cochrane risk of bias. Many of these things about really assessing bias in trials started at McMaster. I don't remember if you, people remember the Jadad scale. Mm -hmm. yes. It was one of the first tools to actually come out of McMaster assessing uh, bias when people do systematic reviews of trials. Uh, things have evolved, and now we have the new Cochrane risk of bias tool. But it started with the ADAR scale uh, as a way to actually do this. Yeah, so just a little bit of background on that. So Alex Haddad, who's currently at the University of Toronto, had done his master's program at Oxford and developed that instrument, the Haddad scale, to look at the quality of, of randomized control trials. I think, am I right in saying his first faculty position after he graduated from Oxford was at McMaster? Is that the one? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. And then, of course, since the Haddad scale, the instrumentation for looking at the quality of randomized trials has evolved a lot. But that was the bee's knees, if you will, for probably 10 years in the field. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Methodology Matters, please head over to methodologymatters.podbean.com. 
or you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Devani and his work, you can find links to his faculty profile and a number of his published articles, including those on pilot and feasibility studies, in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode of Methodology Matters, a podcast on evidence-based nutrition. Music